When Maddie and I first came up with the idea for this podcast, I had no idea where to start. What platform should I host it on? How do I get us listed or track my statistics? And that's where Buzzsprout came in. Buzzsprout is the trusted host for over 100,000 podcasters, and it was easy to see why. With their directory integrations, it was simple to ensure content being published on platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. From day one, I've been so impressed with how easy it was to get set up, and their customer support team has been so quick at getting back to me whenever I had a question or needed help. Not only that, but being able to get a comprehensive list of statistics on our show performance has been a fascinating read. If you're interested in starting a podcast of your own or making the switch to a new provider, please click the link on our show notes and get a $20 Amazon gift card when you sign up for a paid plan. Bonus, by clicking on our unique URL, you help support our show, which means we'll love you forever. So why not get started today? We did and couldn't be happier. Buzzsprout, the best way to launch a professional podcast. Do it. Hello and welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hi. How's it going? You know, just doing as we do. <laughs> yeah. Full disclosure, readers, we've had a we've had quite the week. It's been been quite the run. So yeah, uh, this might get weird. <laughs> It's probably going to get super weird. <laughs> We're also recording late, which we haven't done for a long time. Yeah, this I'll get into it. But this week's case was a doozy and it's probably no, it literally is the longest case that I've written about. Like yeah. the notes are twice what I normally write. So awesome. Buckle up, kids. I'll get my reactions ready. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> what? Get your reaction face ready. <laughs> Stretch my facial muscles. And this isn't a corrections cubby, but an announcement that <laughs> during the month of July, our podcast is the Oracle Network's podcast of the month. Hey, we did something. I think I speak for both Maddie and I when I say that we are humbled and honored to be the featured podcast of the month. Absolutely. And it has been really awesome being a part of such a cool network with mm -hmm. so many other amazing independent podcasters who I've now started doing some partnership stuff with. This, mm -hmm. You'll hear a couple people from the Oracle Network on upcoming episodes of Can You Crack the Cramp Word, mm -hmm. which is great. And I've also put together a list of everyone who's part of the network on Podchaser. And I will be including a link to that in the show notes if you want to go see who's all part of this network and maybe start checking out or, or following the ones that you haven't heard of before. So just throwing that out there. This week, we are going to be discussing William Palmer. Name Rainbow at all? Any relation to Arnie? No, which is probably a good thing for Arnie. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> so, Palmer, did he have some sort of villainous nickname? Yes, he had several. Ooh, this okay. was requested by Aaron of the I Had to Say It podcast. Hope you enjoy, Aaron. So, information this week was pulled from the following sources a 2016 Head Stuff article by Kieran Conleaf, 
I hope I said your name right. 2015, The Guardian article by Kate Polkwin. I hope I said your name right. 2015, <laughs> Mental Floss article by Caitlin Schneider. I said that one right. The 2014 article in Stoke and Staffordshire, Murderpedia, the Science History Institute website, the U.S. National Library of Medicine website, Wikipedia, uh -oh. and the William Palmer WordPress website. And huge thanks and kudos and mad props to Dave Lewis, who is the author of the William Palmer website. That was pretty much my main source of information for this episode. And I spent probably a full day of my life on this website, like wow. looking at stuff. So you demand when it comes to William Palmer, Dave Lewis, kudos to you. And links to all these articles, including that one, will be in the show notes. It's been some medicine story. Yes. So there are people who think that poison is the tool of women. Well, today we'll be covering our first male poisoner, the esteemed Dr. William Palmer. So he did make Arnie Palmer's. Awesome. Good. Good, good, good. <laughs> Not the good ones. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. <laughs> Bad ones. Bad ones. Ones that taste like almonds. <laughs> almonds? <laughs> Tastes like burning. <laughs> I hate it. William Palmer was born on August 6th. 1824 in Rugeley, Staffordshire, England. Yes, we are in England. So blanket apology up front. I will do my best. I can't wait for our friends to make fun of us now. Please we do. have friends in Europe. My nail. Please make fun of us. Parents Joseph and Sarah Palmer. He was the sixth of eight children mm -hmm. and his father worked as a sawer which is someone who saws wood, usually with the aid of a pit or a whipsaw, and they would typically cut the lumber to certain lengths so they can be sold at consumer markets. So kind of like what we would consider a lumber mill. Okay. And one would think that anyone working in this trade, especially with eight children and a wife to provide for, would be quite penniless. But Joseph actually made a decent living thanks to the help of some of his wife Sarah's male acquaintances. Joseph made quite a lot of money what? selling stolen timber up until he died quite um, unexpectedly at the age of 60 while eating bread and cheese at his home. I went way far left when you were like his wife's friends. It was like hmm? <laughs> <laughs> extra money with wife's male friends. Oh, no. <laughs> but it was, it was it involved a different kind of wood. Got it. Yes. We're good. We're good. 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 We're in the 1800s. I mean, <laughs> that's not an excuse. <laughs> that's true. Sad about bread and cheese. I know. But what a way to go. I, Eating yeah, something that you like. Oh, you know, doing something you love. Eating Nothing bread and cheese. All fat and sassy. <laughs> and then dying all fat and sassy. <laughs> William was 12 at the time of his father's passing. And his mother, mm. Sarah, was able to receive a legacy of 75,000 pounds, which would be about 8.8 .8 million pounds today with the stipulations that 7,000 pounds or about 818,000 pounds each would go to each of their sons, of which there were five. Uh -huh. And the rest would go to his wife, given that she wouldn't remarry after his death. Ouch. You must harsh. live alone until you die. <laughs> but look, money. Well. Sarah remained in their home in Rugeley unmarried until she passed in 1861 at the age of 67. Mm. Of his siblings, as I mentioned, William, or Billy, as his mother called him, yeah. was the sixth of eight. His oldest sister, Marianne, was eight years his senior, 
the eldest of the bunch, and apparently lived a scandalous life that ended with her drinking herself to death. Well, I mean, it's just a liquid form of her dad's death, you know? Yeah. His eldest brother, Joseph, who was born two years after Marianne, was one of the most prosperous of the siblings. He started life as an apprentice of a timber merchant in Liverpool before starting his own timber merchant business in Rugley. He married Miss Milchrist, who was the eldest daughter of a quite wealthy family. Mm-hmm. He owned and operated a coilery, which is a coal mine in operation. So like the whole shebang when it comes to coal. A coilery. A coilery. <laughs> and he operated that for a time before it failed and he ended up retiring mm. from business and living with his rich family in liverpool how does a coal mine fail like how does that you run out of coal you just run out yeah you must just run out of coal okay i mean they you always would, needed it <laughs> you would think you wouldn't be able to run out of coal but apparently in some places you could well i mean it is yeah it is a fossil fuel, so. You, you definitely ran out of it, yes. Yeah. <laughs> he died young in 1853 at the age of 35. Ouch. Yeah. So it failed that fast? He ran out of coal that fast. He <laughs> <laughs> was like, I'm retiring at the age of 30. And then five years later, he's like, I'm dead. Yeah. That was a great retirement. <laughs> Where's my wine and cheese? Let's just continue <laughs> this legacy. <laughs> The bread did it. The twins, George and Sarah, were born three years after Joseph, but Sarah would die shortly before her first birthday. George got married to the daughter of an iron merchant in Liverpool and served as an attorney in Rugeley. Walter was born the year before William in 1823 and worked as a corn merchant on the Isle of Man. He lived in a constant state of bankruptcy and was a drunk until he died in 1855 at the age of 32. He was the first obvious black sheep of the family. Yes. Before William. It's unclear if his younger brother poisoned him or if he simply drank himself to death, which many believe is the most likely of the two claims. Or both. It could have been both. He could have poisoned the alcohol more. Yeah. Just wood alcohol. Yeah. Or corn alcohol. Yeah. He was said to have suffered from delirium tremens which is a serious Ooh. form of acute alcoholism, yeah. which manifests in tremors that rack the whole body, but yep. focus primarily on the hands and tongue. It's also accompanied by insane hallucinations that are commonly known as blue devils. William's younger brother, Thomas, was born in 1827 and went on to become a man of the cloth and served as a clergy at Cotton in the Elms in Derbyshire until his death in 1887 at the age of 60. So he's the longest running so far. Yep. Sarah, the youngest of the eight, was born in 1832 and said to be one of the kindest and most generous women in Rugeley. She married a man named Alexander Brody in Aldgate, London in 1856 at the age of 24. Her husband, Alexander, became a vicar and Sarah died in 1907 at the age of 75 in Kent. She and Alexander also had eight children together. So now we're going to go back to William. But I wanted to include his family to give some context as to the type of characters he grew up with, if you will. Because they're all very different. They're all very different, but some of them have very similar themes. And for better or worse, they're kind of going to play a part in the story. So I kind of wanted to make sure I was giving each of them a little bit of the bill. Growing up, William went to school at Rugeley Free Grammar School, which just so happened to be next door to their home. 
mm-hmm. where he learned under the tutelage of Reverend Thomas Bonnie M.A. Accounts differ on how he behaved at school. Some places say he was a bully that would steal money from his mother and sisters, and others say he was the very best of all his siblings. I doubt that because one of them was a man of the cloth and the other one was like an angel baby. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think it's the former. Not Billy. (laughs) His father, Joseph, was a strict disciplinarian, but upon his death, William's mother just let her children do as they pleased, which if you have eight kids, that's kind of fair. Yeah. Well, especially since she lost most of the power when all this money went to her sons. Yep. And that was during a time where her sons probably did end up having more power than she did. Yep. Sooner than later. Yeah. At the age of 17, William left school and with the help of his mother, secured an apprenticeship at a wholesale chemist in Liverpool run by Messrs. Evans and Evans. It wasn't long into his employment there that money started disappearing. An inspector was called in to investigate, and even though traps were set, nothing came of the investigation until one of the Evans happened to catch William opening an envelope that was addressed to the company. At this point in history, checks weren't a thing yet, so money would be sent in the mail to the company to pay for medications. Mm, Okay. William narrowly escaped serving time in prison because his mother repaid the money he'd stolen after he'd been fired from his position. You're enabling. Yep. It came out later that he'd been stealing the money so he could use it on his older girlfriend, Jane Widnall. She ended up dumping him when she found out that she wouldn't be able to gain access to his inheritance money if he married before the age of 21 because she's Mm. a classy dame. Yeah. She's got bigger fish to fry. Yep. William's second position was an apprenticeship with Dr. Edward Tylecott in Great Haywood as his assistant. It may not surprise you to learn that once he got another job, old Jane sauntered back into William's life. Mm. Her mother had married a man named Mr. Vickerstaff, who was the assistant of the gardener who worked at the nearby Shoeborough Park. That's a lot of words. It was a lot of words. <laughs> Goddamn. Jane was bound and determined to get her delicate little hands on the money that William was set to inherit. Mm. So she did what all delusional women do, started dating someone else to make him jealous. Of course, because that works, especially with murderers. With murderers. (laughs) Well, it appeared to work because William got so pissed at her beau, Peter Smirk. (laughs) Oh, what? Yeah. Or maybe Smirk. S-M-I-R-K-E. I'm Uh, Smirky. I like (laughs) Smirk. I like to imagine him just smirks all the time. Right. So he got so pissed at her bow, Peter Smirk, that he cut up his boots and poured acid all over his clothes. How did he get a hold of his clothes? I don't know. <laughs> I just know that that's what happened. Maybe he had to change because dark. He was, I don't know. I don't know. But either way, he. Maybe Jane was like, hey, want to do a fun prank? Got <laughs> your clothes. I hate right. this man. Let him write me off. I love you. Would you be surprised if I told you that money once again started to mysteriously disappear at William's new place of employment? Oh, what? William used the money he'd stolen from Dr. Tylecott so he and Jane could run off to Walsail where they stayed until the money ran out and they had to come back. Oh, <laughs> like three weeks. <laughs> Who knows? Hey, guys. Hey, guys. I'm back. <laughs> William's brothers had to settle his debts with the doctor, and Jane herself had around 100 pounds, or 13,000 pounds today, on her person, which coincidentally was the life savings of her new father, who she'd stolen it from. Yeah. 
So she was also pretty awesome. Fun. Yeah, she was fun, fun person. Yeah. Once William and Jane returned, his mother begged the doctor to forgive him and take him back on, but he refused. Good on you. Yeah. After this, William went to the Stafford Infirmary, where he became a walking pupil, which basically meant he shadowed the medical staff around to learn from them. So he just Mm. kind of followed people around to learn. In order to do so, he merely had to pay five guineas, which is about 320 pounds, to become a student of the hospital. Interesting. Classy Jane refused to move back home feeling she deserved better. So she mm. wrote a letter to her old flame, Peter, the one who'd had his clothes eaten up by acid. Right. Told him that William had deserted her after she told him that she loved Peter and Peter alone. Wow. Peter believed her because, of course he did. Why not? And he left the employee of Dr. Talcott so he could marry Jane before they both set off for Sydney, Australia, where Peter started a medical practice. Dang. Going to the old penal colony. There you go. So back to William, who was either a stone-cold fox or had a magic sausage, because this guy managed to get 14 different women around Haywood pregnant over the next few years whilst he was off giving an education at the Staffordshire Infirmary in 1844. Gross. That's classic narcissism. Yep. In a surprising move, he did manage to secure a wife, a woman named Annie Thornton. Mm. Annie was the daughter of a retired Indian Army officer. He wasn't actually from India. No. Yeah. That was when they colonized it. Yep. Or were occupying it. Sorry, occupying. Annie was the daughter of a retired Indian Army officer, Lieutenant Colonel William Brooks, and his housekeeper, Ann Thornton. So she was an illegitimate child. Ah. And she was of mixed race. Annie's mother was considerably younger than her father, and she hated him for never marrying her. Yeah, I see that. Annie's father later died by suicide in 1834, but not before bequeathing Annie his property, which was the Noah's Ark Inn, which is now known as the Surgery, which is kind of a dark name. Yeah. That garnered her an annual income of 250 pounds a year, or around 33,000 pounds a year now. Not bad. Not bad for a young woman. The colonel had updated his will on July 27, 1833, bequeathing Anne nine houses at Stafford in addition to the land, as well as an interest on 20,000 sikarupees. I don't know what that means for her and any children she would have. Wow. She was also, upon his death, to be placed in the care of Dr. Edward Knight and Mr. Dawson, both of whom were her guardians and trustees. Yeah, because men had to handle the money officially. Yep. Since her mother was unstable, the Chancery Council made the decision to remove her from her mother's care and make her a ward of the state. She was moved to Abbott's Bromley, where she lived with Mr. Charles Dawson and his family. And it's said that she helped care for two of Mr. Dawson's wives. So she must have been helping out while they were in poor health, I'm assuming. Yeah. Annie was sent to Miss Bond's school in Haywood, which is where she met William and fell in love with him. And we'll come back to their relationship a little bit later in the story. But she was wearing rose-colored glasses. I bet. During his time working as a student, William became fascinated with poisons and would often take books on them home from the hospital library. Awesome. Totally not strange. Or foreboding. Or alarming. (laughs) No red flags here. Nothing to see here. Like when people Google, how body dissolves an acid. (laughs) Yep. That's totally normal. Fun fact, during this time in history, no one wanted to be sent to Stafford Infirmary, even if they were dying. Oh, 
Ah, so it was one of those hospitals. It said that the staff of the hospital viewed anesthesia as an unnecessary expense. Gross. They were often short-staffed when it came to nurses, and the nurses they did manage to keep on were either completely inept or often came to work drunk. Great. So they they medicated themselves and not their, not their patient. Yep. Would you like a snifter of brandy before I cut your leg off? Right. Here you go. Safe. Cheers. Totally safe. It wasn't long before William left Stafford Infirmary for London to train as a doctor at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in 1845 after he received his inheritance. Would it surprise you to learn that instead of studying, he spent the bulk of his time drinking and singing with women that most often ended up in his bed? No. Not him. I don't believe it. Even the hospital was fed up with his nonsense. They got in touch with William's. Yeah. Yeah. That hospital was like, no, thanks. No, this is the new one. The St. Bartholomew's. Okay. They got in touch with William's mom and told her straight out that there was little to no chance that her son was going to pass the exams in order to become a doctor unless he got his shit together. You're just going to tell me by with my mom? God, not cool, guys. Not cool. Would you call my mom? So Sarah hired Dr. Stigall. Stigall? I like Dr. Stigall. Sounds like Steven Stigall. Yeah. She hired Dr. Stigall, who talked like this, <laughs> to tutor him, telling him she'd pay him 100 pounds or 12,000 pounds today if he could help her son pass the exams. Uh-huh. Somehow, Dr. Stigall worked a miracle because William was able to qualify to be a doctor, but Stigall never got his money. Also, like, screw you guy for making that happen. <laughs> yeah. I hope you feel real bad. He eventually had to sue Sarah to get paid, and it's reported that they settled out of court. So William returned to Rugali in August 1846 after getting his diploma from the College of Surgeons. A few months after returning, William was enjoying a drink at the local Lamb and Flag in Little Haywood when he struck up a conversation with George Abley, who was a plumber by trade. Before long, the pair decided to make a wager on whether George could drink two tumblers of brandy. Tumblers of brandy? Tumblers of brandy. Okay. Unable to resist the bet, William agreed, and even though George won the bet, he quickly fell ill and was later found unconscious outside the pub. George was carried home, but the next morning he was pronounced dead. What? What? At the time, the coroner's jury ruled it as a simple case of overindulgence gone wrong. But years Mm. later, this rather sudden death after his interaction with William would come into question. I bet. For some reason, Dr. Talcott once again let William work with him as a doctor, maybe because he actually had a doctor's license this time. And he was like, "Okay, maybe you got your shit together. Maybe he had a crush on his mom. Maybe. I keep thinking maybe it's one of those like Forrest Gump situations where she was like, I'm lonely and a widow. Please let my son Billy work for you. Yeah. He was like, I can't say no to you, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) You're too pretty. So William would go with Dr. Talcott to treat pupils at the local schools. And it was there that he first met Annie. So after a long courtship, and against Mr. Dawson's wishes, they married on October 7th, 1847, at the parish church of St. Nicholas in Abbott's Bromley, Stafford. Question. Annie was a teacher? Annie was... A student? A student. But this was a, like, secondary type school? Doesn't matter. So William was 23 and Annie was 20. So she wasn't mm-hmm. that much younger than him. She was only okay. three. Yeah. Yeah, this wasn't like a... I'll allow it. <laughs> For now. (laughs) 
1847, William began working as a doctor in a house he rented in Market Street for 25 pounds, or about $2,700 today, a year. The house was across the way from the Talbot Arms, which is today known as the Shrew. Interesting turn of events in terms of the name. Yep. William must have been well-liked because he grew his practice to the point that he had to hire a full-time assistant, which he found in Benjamin Thurlby. (laughs) Now, because the place is called the Shrew, I just imagine them all as mouse characters. (laughs) Like from The Secret of Nim. Yeah. (laughs) Little top hats and like waistcoats. Long mustaches. Yeah. For whatever reason, even though they're mice. Yeah. Targeted facial hair. <laughs> yep. And it wasn't long before Benjamin began to run the practice, so William could indulge in his new favorite pastime, horse racing. Okay. You ready? No. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> a few years after starting his practice, William had just gotten bored being a country doctor. And like many of the men of Rugali, he enjoyed watching the horse races that would take place at Etching Hill near Canuck Chase. After a while, just watching and betting wasn't enough. He wanted mm. to own and race his own horses. Yes, why not? It was a pricey indulgence, often reserved for the gentry, for good reason. Yep. yep. Once you buy a horse, you have to keep feeding it and taking care of it. Well, and you can't just buy any old horse. Mm. It's got to be a thoroughbred horse. Yep. And those don't just fall off the backs of wagons. Or do they? <laughs> <laughs> they do if you poison the driver. <laughs> Come on, Cloppy. Let's go. <laughs> Meanwhile, William's relationship with his mother-in-law, Mary Thornton, wasn't ideal, which probably Mm. had more to do with the fact that he was frequently borrowing money from her than anything else. Yeah, that would make sense. She regularly accused him of poisoning her cats and remarked that the only reason he married Annie at all was so he could get access to her money. Is she wrong, though? Where's the lie? Yeah. Because as I kind of mentioned earlier, being of a mixed race, many would have seen it as shameful to be married to a woman like Annie. But he saw it as a financial opportunity. That or he actually genuinely loved her, which I mean, probably not. But (laughs) but she, for all intents and purposes, actually held him in great affection because Mm -hmm. he consented to marry her instead of keeping her as a mistress. Yeah. On January 6th, 1849. William asked Annie's mother to move in with them at the home he was renting because he claimed that upon visiting her the day before, he'd found her unconscious and suffering from alcohol poisoning, which was plausible considering she was a notorious drunk. Oh, okay. Mary was in a coma at the Palmer house until she passed 12 days later at the age of 50, having never regained consciousness. Oh. In his will... Colonel Brooks, Annie's father, had noted that upon her mother Mary's death, she should inherit the property that he had left Mary, which was quite extensive. As I mentioned, all the houses yeah. and land. However, the Chancery Court, who had made her a ward of the state when her mother was deemed unfit to care for her, ruled that due to her marriage, any right she may have had to the property was revoked. So the homes and the lands instead went to the Colonel's cousin. I mean... So after this ruling, it said that William was furious. Yeah, I bet he lost interest pretty fast. Yeah. By 1850, William had purchased his own stables in Rugley before he started buying and selling horses, sending his best off to be trained. At the height of his horse racing endeavors, he had 15 horses that he trained at Hednesford, as well as a paddock and several fields. Things were looking great for William for a time until he started losing his bets and his debts started to rise. 
Within one year of racing, everyone thought of him as a defaulter, which is basically someone who never paid their debts. Great. Good to be known as that, that guy. Yeah. One of his horses was prevented from running, and he had to get loans to pay off his bets. Not good. It wasn't long before he was banned from Tattersall's, which was the European bloodstock auctioneers, where the best of the best horses were bought and sold. Didn't really bode well for his plans. Nope. Also around this time, William gained a reputation as a nobbler, which was someone who would attempt to rig the race by doping up one of the other horses. Cool. So he's using, he's notorious for using drugs on animals, but why would he poison people? Mm -hmm. Not this guy. Not that guy. He's a doctor. He's fine. At one point, William attended the Chester races with a friend named Leonard Bladden. Although William lost on each of his races, Leonard did quite well for himself, and the pair left to return to Rugeley together as William owed Leonard money after his losses. Yeah. While there, Leonard wrote a letter to his wife, letting her know that he would be home soon with close to 1,000 pounds, or around 138,000 pounds today. Unfortunately for Leonard, he became quite ill during his stay in Rugeley. And William believed it had something to do with an accident that he had suffered six months prior when he'd been hit in the chest by a cart. Wow, an infection that works really slowly for six months and then works really fast. Yep. Interesting. Leonard's wife was called for, and when she arrived, it was to find her husband bedridden in agony. He died soon after on May 10th, 1850, at the age of 49. And William listed his cause of death as an internal abscess from his previous injury. Upon leaving Rugeley, Leonard's wife, who had been expecting to find the thousand pounds amongst her husband's effects, was surprised to discover that the only money on his person was 15 pounds, or around $2,000 today. Yeah, that's suspicious. By rigging races, members of the racing authorities were quick to turn on our friend Billy which wouldn't really bode well for him in the future. Yeah, but not. And even though William was listed as a very good loser, he started to lose more than he won. The turning point was during a race when his horse, Nettle, swerved to the left and tumbled over the guard chains on the side of the track. His jockey, a man named Marlowe, was thrown from the horse and fractured his thigh, losing the race and costing William more money. Ouch, fracturing your thigh? Yeah, so I don't know if the horse fell on him. I would imagine the horse fell on him. Yeah. But that didn't Mm. stop him from pup crawling with his racing buddies, partying through the day and making quite a ruckus. Because fuck that guy. Yeah, why not? As I mentioned before, William's debts were starting to rise, and he turned to two money lenders to try and stay on top of them, Thomas Pratt and Mr. Padwick. At that time, money lenders tended to charge up to 60% interest. And at one point, Mr. Padwick sued William's mother, Sarah, to receive some of the money that William owed him. And to continue to show just what kind of a piece of shit William was, one Mm -hmm. time he purchased two thoroughbreds worth 2,000 pounds or around 160,000 pounds each. And since he didn't have the money to actually buy them, he forged his mother's signature to act as a guarantor on the loans. Of course. Why not? He also forged the signature of John Parsons Cook, an American lawyer Uh and a character in this story that we'll be getting back to very soon. Uh, Sounds like it. Now we're going to go back to his marriage with Annie. Mm -hmm. Annie and William would have five children together during their marriage. Wow. William, or Little Willie, in 1850. 
Elizabeth in 1851, Henry in 1852, Frank in 1852, and John in 1854. He had two babies in one year. Were they twins? Of their five children, only little Willie would survive past infancy. Oh, no. The rest lived as long as one month or as little as three days. Each death certificate reads the same as convulsions. Oh. Yeah. No. There has been a theory proposed that the couple's blood may have had something to do with the deaths of so many of their children. William had rhesus positive blood, while Annie's was rhesus negative. So basically, everyone has rhesus blood, and it's either positive or negative. But rhesus mm-hmm. is when a certain type of protein attaches to the red blood cells. Okay. And the reason this is important is the fact that a mother who is RH negative can still carry a child that is RH positive, but her body may develop antibodies that attack the RH positive red blood cells which can cause a condition called HDN. HDN can cause brain damage, serious illness, or even death in a fetus or newborn baby. And this may explain why all but her first child died in infancy. so sad. Because her body probably didn't make the antibodies yet with the first. Because that was something, yeah. And that's something that later injections were developed to combat that. Mm -hmm. If they knew that the mother was... RH negative, but not at that point in time. Another more likely theory comes from the mouth of Matilda Bradshaw, who was the cleaning lady for the Palmer family. She caused quite a scene when she quit working for William after the fourth child passed and was later heard at the local pub declaring that the good doctor had, quote, done away, end quote, with another of his children so he wouldn't have to pay to raise them. Oh, shit. Yeah, that was what I was afraid of. Yep. Oh, no. It was after the death of their fifth child in April 1854 that William, who at this time was very much in debt, insured his wife for 13,000 pounds, or about 1.5 million pounds today, for which he paid a premium of 760 pounds, or about 86,000 pounds today, prior to her death. Uh Uh-oh. It's never a good sign when someone takes an insurance policy out on you. No, not particularly, no. Uh, Not without your consent. Yeah, and if you're actively dying and it's like in your will or whatever. Yeah. In September of 1854, Annie and her sister-in-law, Sarah Palmer, who was William's youngest sister that was the cool, kind one. Yeah. They traveled to Liverpool to attend a concert at St. George's Hall. And even though it was autumn, Annie wore a summer dress to the event. And it's believed that she caught a chill as a result of her not dressing appropriately. Okay. The pair stayed overnight in Liverpool before traveling back to Rugali via train. Upon coming home, Annie was visibly unwell and went straight to bed. The next morning, William brought her a breakfast of dry toast and tea with sugar and no milk. It wasn't long after this that she began vomiting. And on the following Sunday, after she continued to be poorly, so almost a week after she came home with Sarah, mm-hmm. William called for Dr. Bamford to come and see her. Dr. Bamford thought she may have caught a strain of English cholera and prescribed her medications that contained calomel, which causes diarrhea, Mm -hmm. and colocynth, which also caused diarrhea, not to mention damage to the intestines and the kidneys. Didn't know that at the time, though. No, they just knew it made you shit. Yeah. Annie was visited by another physician named Dr. Knight upon the request of her benefactor, Mr. Dawson, and he visited twice the next day on Monday. 
he stated that when he visited her, she was too ill to hold a coherent conversation. And when visiting her again on Tuesday evening, he discovered that she'd only taken one of the pills that she'd been prescribed by Dr. Bamford. The final medical professional, quote unquote, that saw Annie was William's assistant, Benjamin, who ordered her a small diluted dose of prussic acid, which is also known as cyanide. Why would you prescribe that? Because back then that fixed everything. It's fine if it's in a tincture. Okay. Friday, September 29th, 1854, two weeks after she'd first fallen ill, Annie died at 1.10 p.m. at her home. Mm. Her death certificate listed her cause of death as English cholera, and she was interred in the Palmer family vault at St. Augustine's Church in Rugeley. She was 27 at the time of her death. That's so young. For context... Between 1853 and 1854, that was the time of the third wave of cholera in England. And in fact, 23,000 people died of the disease during that two-year period. So his wife dying of this common disease wouldn't have been seen as a cause for concern on its own until years later. Yeah, after the fact. Yeah. Roughly nine months after Annie's death on June 26, 1855, William's 18-year-old housemaid, Eliza Tharm, who he'd been having an affair with for some time, gave birth to his illegitimate son. And five months later, after she'd brought the baby to see him, the boy suddenly died. So we know about the other children then. Yep. During William's horse racing days, he became close friends with a man named John Parson Cook, who I mentioned a little earlier, the American lawyer. John was born in Catherpe before taking up residence in Lutterworth, Leicestershire. (laughs) John worked with a solicitor in Watling until he received an inheritance of 12,000 pounds. I'm not sure at what point in time he received the inheritance because I couldn't find a year, but I'm going to assume it was in the 1850s, which would have made it around 962,000 pounds today. Okay. So, chump change. Close, Close to a million. Yes. Upon receiving his inheritance, John left his job and started spending a lot of time and money at the horse racing tracks. Because why not? You got money. You're young and free. Do dumb things. He started running wild, and even though he'd never had the best health, his new hard and fast lifestyle caught up to him really quickly. Hmm. Rumors circulated about Rugeley that William had been treating John for syphilis. That's a nasty rumor. Yeah. A year after his wife's death... William was in worse shape than ever after taking out an 82,000 pound or 6.5 million pounds today insurance policy on his brother, Walter, the one who drank himself to death and had the delirium tremens, that the insurance company refused to pay following his death after doing some investigations because they were like, you took out insurance on a few different people and then they died. So they refused to pay and his debt problem just continued to grow yep not only that but his lovely ex miss jane was apparently trying to blackmail him for some reason why not just for funsies for funsies william did what any smart person would and doubled down on his gambling addiction in a desperate bid to pay back what he owed here he can fix it i can fix it november 1855 was the month that would bring william's disastrous dalliances to a close for better or worse okay 
It all started on Tuesday, November 13th, when he joined his friend John and the Rugely Postmaster, who was a man named Samuel Cheshire, at the Shrewsbury Races. John's horse, Polestar, came in first in the handicap race and earned him 3,000 pounds, or around 330,000 pounds today. Okay. William left his friends at the track while John headed to the Raven Hotel with friends and ended up treating the patrons to beer and food. Because he won! Nice. Yeah, why not? The following day, William received a letter from Mr. Pratt, one of the many moneylenders he'd borrowed from in the past, demanding mm-hmm. his money or else. So William decided to head where he usually could be found, the Shrewsbury races, with a saddler named George Myatt. That night, William ate at the Raven Inn in Shrewsbury with his good friend John, Samuel Cheshire, the postmaster, a wine merchant named Ishmael Fisher, and then the three Georges, George Herring, George Myatt, who he'd attended the races with earlier in the day, mm-hmm. and George Reed. Sometime during the evening, William left the assembled party and visited the housemaid's pantry, where Mrs. Ann Brooks, a woman from Manchester who frequented the racetracks and who knew William, met up with him to inquire about a jockey. When she first saw William, he was pouring fluid from a small bottle into a tumbler. Interesting. Then shook it and inspected the contents against the gaslight. William wasn't perturbed by her seeing him do this and afterwards had a discussion with her before returning to the group where shortly after a tray of brandy was brought in. When John drank his, he leapt from his chair, exclaiming that it burnt his throat. William took John's glass, drank from it, and proceeded to hand it over to George Reed, saying, quote, taste it. There's nothing in it. John says it's drugged, end quote. George looked at him as if he was crazy, saying, Quote, what is the good of giving it to me when you have drunk the very dregs? End quote. Not long after this, John stated that he didn't feel well, and he left the party to return to his room along with George Herring and Ishmael Fisher. Okay. John gave Ishmael his money belt for safekeeping, and a doctor was sent for not long after this, and the doctor was called mm-hmm. on again in the early morning. Not a good sign. Nope. The next day, which was Thursday, November 15th, John mm-hmm. woke up feeling better and was able to eat breakfast before joining William at the horse track. Because that's the first place you want to go after you felt like shit. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Hair of the dog. Yep. Hair of the horse. It's fine. Mane of the horses. It's fine. Later that day, William's horse, Nettle, the one that had fallen over the railing and broke the Mm -hmm. jockey's leg, lost and cost William around 5,000 pounds or about 550,000 pounds today. Ouch. The pair returned to Rugley, where John booked room 10 at the Talbot Arms Hotel that sat across the street from William's rented home. John went straight to bed upon entering the hotel. Mm -hmm. Friday afternoon, November 16th, John woke up in the afternoon and enjoyed a meal with William. The following morning, when William came to check in on John, he ordered him some coffee. John was very ill and constantly getting sick. William was in and out of room 10 at the Talbot Arms all day, checking in on his friend. Of course, he's a doctor. Sunday the 18th, William asked, Sunday the 18th, William asked Dr. Bamford to come and check on John. William sent some broth over to John. And it's unclear if he was able to have some, but the chambermaid named Elizabeth Mills, who attended to him, fell ill after tasting some of the broth. And when I say uh, fell uh, ill, I mean violently ill. Monday, November 19th, William took off for London with John's betting books and was able to collect John's winnings before returning to Rugeley. By this time, John appeared to be on the mend. Late that evening, it said that William bought three grains of strychnine from a man named Mr. Newton around 10 p.m. Interesting. Strychnine is a terrible way to die. 
We discussed this last time, I think. Yeah. I learned that on Women Who Kill. <laughs> Me. The following day, Tuesday, November 20th, Joan was very ill in the early morning, but appeared to be rallying. Dr. Jones, a longtime friend of John, arrived at 2 p.m. to check on him after William had written to him about John's poor health. Interesting. On Wednesday, November 21st, 1855, at 1 a.m., John died at the age of 28. Oh, young. Yeah. In an article that was published in the Illustrated Times on February 2nd, 1856, the events of that night prior to his death were as follows. This is kind of long, but it really paints a picture. Quote, old Dr. Bamford, aged 82, had been called in before and had prescribed two opiate pills, which Mr. Palmer himself had from him. Mr. Jones slept in the same room with his friend. The foot of the beds were opposite to each other, the room being sufficiently large, and Mr. Cook, who was John, lying between Mm -hmm. the door and the window. A little after 11, Mr. Palmer went across and gave the sick man two pills supposed to be morphine. Vomiting ensued, but the pills remained on the stomach. About midnight, Mr. Jones undressed himself and turned in. He had not lain down above 20 minutes when his friend called him in alarm and begged that Mr. Palmer might be sent for immediately. That gentleman was by his bedside within three minutes, foolishly volunteering the remark that he had never dressed so quickly in his life before. Uh-huh. He then gave him two pills, which he brought with him, saying that they were ammonia pills, a preparation never kept ready made up because of evaporation. Interesting. A terrible scene now ensued. Wildly shrieking, the patient tossed about in fearful convulsions. His limbs were so rigid that it was impossible to raise him, though he entreated that they would do so, as he felt that he was suffocating. Every muscle was convulsed. His body bent upwards like a bow. They turned him over on his left side. The action of the heart gradually ceased, and he was dead. End quote. Yeah, that's strychnine. Upon John's death, Mary Keeley was sent for by William to, quote, lay out the body, end quote. Because at that time, they didn't take him to a funeral home, because those didn't exist. Yeah, so what they do? She came soon after with her sister-in-law and later stated that in all the years that she'd laid out corpses, she'd never found a body as stiff as John's was. Yep. Dr. Jones, who had briefly attended John, boarded a train to London the day that John died to inform his stepfather, a man named William Stevens, of his stepson's passing. The following day, the pair traveled to Lutterworth to locate John's will before traveling to Rugeley on Friday to visit the Talbot Arms to view John's body. So basically, they just kept his body at the hotel, which is creepy as fuck. Yeah. Mr. Stevens disliked William, who was sitting with John in room 10 when he arrived. He blamed him for John's wild lifestyle following his inheritance, and was quite annoyed when he discovered that William had already ordered a coffin for John without consulting him first. Interesting that he ordered a coffin. Yep. Mr. Stevens asked William if he knew anything about John's financial affairs, and William informed him that he had legal papers that showed John held outstanding bills totaling 4,000 pounds, or about 441,000 pounds. Wow. Mr. Stevens was shocked as he knew there wasn't enough money left in John's estate to cover that amount. During lunch with Mr. Stevens, Dr. Bamford, Dr. Jones, and William, Mr. Stevens asked if Dr. Jones would go to John's room to bring down his papers and betting book so he could settle his accounts. Hmm. William accompanied Dr. Jones, and they came back 10 minutes later without the betting book. Interesting. When Mr. Stevens asked after it again, William told him that it would turn up eventually, and it was fine because once a person died, all the bets became void. Did it? Mr. Stevens 
knew something was up and demanded that the betting book be found. William was quoted as offhandedly saying, quote, oh, I dare say they will turn up, end quote. Mm. At this time, Mr. Stevens ordered John's room to be locked and that everyone be barred access to it until he returned from London with his solicitor. Lock up the crime scene. Mr. Stevens ran into William on the London train to Rugley. William had been in London to see Mr. Pratt, who had sent him the threatening letter asking where his money was. Mm -hmm. Interesting that he would go to London when he supposedly didn't have any money, right? Right. Mr. Stevens informed William that he would be having a post-mortem performed on John, to which William didn't seem to show much of a reaction. Mr. Stevens also hired a solicitor to look into John's finances, as well as to have specimens taken during the post-mortem and sent out for analysis by Dr. Alfred Swain Taylor. Such a modern thing. Dang. See, Dr. Alfred Swain Taylor was like a modern toxicologist in England. Nice. So it's like he was sending it out to the best person to detect to, poison. To the, the main man. Yeah, because his specialty was detecting poisons. Awesome. On Sunday, November 25th, William obtained a copy of John's death certificate from Dr. Bamford that stated that he died from apoplexy, basically a stroke. Okay. Not long after that, William tracked down Mr. Samuel, the postmaster, and asked him mm -hmm. to sign as a witness that John had signed over the responsibility of the 4,000 pounds and bills that William had told Mr. Stevens his stepson was responsible for, basically saying, oh, yeah, he signed over that I could, you know, take over these 4,000 pounds of winnings yeah. that you had. Yeah. You know, casually. Casual. Before, before you started foaming at the mouth. Yep. Fine. And good on him, the postmaster Samuel refused. Awesome. John's postmortem was done by a Stafford physician named Dr. John Harland, who also happened to know William and was in fact the doctor that passed William as fit to be insured as a practicing physician. Ooh, full circle. I've any regrets that now. Things were off to a great start when Dr. Harlan showed up to the postmortem without any of his medical equipment or even a means to write down his findings. Cool. The postmortem was done on November 26th, 1855, and it was a complete shit show. Sounds like it. Upon William's suggestion, Dr. Harlan used the postmortem as a training exercise for Mr. Charles Devonshire, who was a young and inexperienced medical student, and Mr. Charles Newton, who was an assistant to the town chemist and had never performed a postmortem before. Sure, let's make this a teachable moment. William was a squirrely little shit during the autopsy, and when Charles was opening the stomach, he was seen pushing into him, which caused some of the stomach fluid to spill into the rest of John's body. Hmm. Three ounces of fluid were taken from John's stomach and placed into a jar for further examination. I got enough. The stomach organs were next taken out and placed in a jar that was sealed and set next to another jar that contained two bladders. The jar containing the bladders suddenly went missing. And when Charles asked where they were, William explained that he had moved it, quote, to make it more convenient for you to take away, end quote. Sure, yeah. Charles asked him to retrieve it, and it was easy to see that a small cut had been made in each bladder, but none of the contents had been lost. Awesome. Mr. Stevens had the contents of John's stomach sent to Professor Alfred Swain Taylor, as I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Taylor has been noted as the father of English toxicology. Thanks. William attempted to bribe the boy that was transporting the samples into overturning his cart so that the bottles would smash, making the samples unusable. Of course. Why not? Last ditch effort. When he was able to analyze the samples, Dr. Taylor was so dissatisfied by the samples he received that he demanded a second autopsy be performed. Ooh. 
On November 29th, 1855, John was once again autopsied by the inexperienced Charles, who removed John's liver, kidney, spleen, and took samples of his blood. Following the second postmortem, William bribed Samuel, the postmaster, to intercept letters written to the coroner by Dr. Taylor. Hmm. When William read that he was unable to find traces of prussic acid or cyanide, opium or strychnine, he sent presents of fish and wild game to the coroner twice. Awesome. That's not suspicious at all. Nope. William also wrote a letter to the coroner that he had hand delivered. In this letter, he urged the coroner to return a verdict of, quote, death by natural causes, end quote, and to sweeten the pot, he included a 10-pound note, which would be around $1,100 today. This letter was sent to the home secretary by the coroner and read to the jury at William's trial. Sounds good. As you can imagine, it didn't paint him in the best light. As for Samuel, the postmaster, he served two years in Newgate Prison for mail tampering. Yeah. At the trial, Dr. Taylor stated that even though he couldn't find traces of strychnine, the symptoms led him to believe that William had given John pills containing strychnine on the Tuesday before he died. Yeah. The chief constable headed straight to William's home to arrest him, only to find him sick in bed and already placed under house arrest by the sheriff and his men, following a warrant that was taken out by Mr. Padwick, who was the hmm. other moneylender. Yeah. Because he was accusing William of forgery. William was later tried at Westminster on January 20th, 1856 for this offense. Okay. In December of 1855, William was officially arrested for the murder of John Cook. Oh, a long time. William was tried at the Old Bailey, and his trial was a sensation for a number of reasons. One was the fact that strychnine was new, and many people had no idea what its effects were on the body. Oh, yeah, like no one knew anything about it. That's not good. At this point in time, the act of poisoning was gaining popularity, as we know all too well, mm -hmm. which caused a great deal of fear amongst the general population, especially with the idea that a doctor could be the one doing the poisoning. Yep, that's unsettling. And finally, William was entering the ranks of a new sort of upper class villain, not just your run of the mill, drunken brawl type of criminal. Prior to the trial even starting, the papers were having a field day with the story. Article after article was published that rehashed moments of William's life and his doings before he'd even set foot in court. It was during this media blitz that his nickname of the Prince of Poisoners was born. During the trial, the coroner ordered that the bodies of Walter Palmer, which was his older brother that yeah. died, and Annie to be exhumed. Walter's body had been buried in a lead coffin for whatever okay. reason. All right. And was decayed past the point of being able to conduct any sort of postmortem. Annie's body was preserved enough that an autopsy was able to take place, and traces of antimony, which is a metallic poison similar to arsenic, was detected. Mm -hmm. Antimony was a slow-acting poison that was most commonly used in the Renaissance period. The coroner's jury concluded that both Walter and Annie had been murdered by William, and they planned to charge him with their deaths if William was acquitted of killing John Cook. Unfortunately for the justice system, the case was so famous at that point that there was no way they would be able to pull together an impartial jury and staffer, <laughs> yeah. as everyone there either knew him personally, knew one of his victims, or had read all about him in the press. Yep. I bet it was quite the story for a long time. As a result of this, a new law was passed in Parliament, fittingly known as the Palmer Act, which allows crimes committed anywhere in England to be tried in the Central Criminal Court, or the Old Bailey, in London, 
The act was finalized on April 11th, 1856, and originally known as the Trial of Offenses Act. A month after the act was passed, Williams' trial at the Old Bailey began on May 14th, 1856, and this act still remains on the statute book today. The trial was overseen by Judges Lord Chief Justice Campbell, Baron Alderson, and Justice Cresswell. Sir Alexander Cockburn, the then Attorney General, led the prosecution. Cockburn was quite famous for helping to define the McNaughton rules, which helped establish a claim of insanity. Okay. And after being appointed as a judge years later, he would gain the title of the first Lord Chief Justice of England. Even though Dr. Taylor could not find definitive proof that strychnine had been used to kill John, there was enough circumstantial and supporting evidence to show motive. There was William's mounting gambling debts and the Mm -hmm. fact that he stole John's winnings. There was also the fact that he had an opportunity to purchase strychnine and the mysterious deaths of various family members certainly helped develop a pattern of sorts. Yep. Not to mention the woman that saw him pour a substance into the... Exactly. Yeah. The most damning evidence of all was the fact that John died shortly after ingesting pills prepared by William Mm -hmm. and the fact that he interfered with both postmortems and attempted to bribe the coroner. William's lead counsel, Mr. William Shee, surprisingly believed that William was innocent. They alleged Mm -hmm. that John had died from tetanus, which John's own physician, Dr. Jones, attested to with no real proof. The matter came down to the witnesses that were called by both sides. The defense called Jeremiah Smith as a witness to provide an alibi for William for the night it said that he procured the strychnine. Mm-hmm. But upon cross-examination, it was revealed that Jeremiah had signed as a witness on the insurance policy for Walter Palmer, thereby making him an accomplice to fraud. Yeah, not great. Not a good start. The trial brought with it quite a number of celebrities of the day including politicians such as Mr. Gladstone, the Lord Mayor of London, the Dukes of Cambridge and Wellington, the Earl of Derby, the Prince of Saxe-Weimar, and others. I bet it was quite the entertainment. Oh, yeah. After a 12-day trial, it only took the jury one hour and 17 minutes to return with a guilty verdict for the murder of John Cook. William was sentenced to death, and the Palmer Act allowed for him to either be hanged in London or in Stafford. So William was transported back to Stafford for execution. On the evening of May 27th, 1856, William was put back in prison garb, handcuffed, and his ankles were chained before he was taken via cab from Newgate Prison to the Euston Railway Station to take a train to Stafford. Upon arriving, he was met by the superintendent of the Stafford police and driven straight to the Stafford jail. On Friday, June 13th, William was visited by Mr. Smith, his solicitor. William told him simply, quote, I am innocent of poisoning Cook by strychnine. All I ask is that you have Cook's body exhumed and that you will see to my mother and boy, end quote. Later that night, he was visited by both of his surviving brothers and his sister. The prison chaplain, Reverend Goodacre, stayed with William from around 2.30 to 5 in the morning, trying to get him to confess to his sins. Yeah. Which he didn't. Of course not. At 7.30 a.m., William enjoyed a cup of tea, some brandy, and water before being joined in his cell by the prison governor, as well as the high sheriff and the undersheriff. William met with the hangman, George Smith, who tied his hands before William was paraded through the jail towards the gallows. Gotta keep it. Gotta keep those papers running. Yep. On the morning of June 14, 1856, at 8 a.m., between 30 and 35,000 people gathered outside Stafford Jail to witness the execution of Palmer the Poisoner. That's crazy. Multiple platforms had been erected the day before for the vast number of spectators. 
Even when upon the scaffold, William maintained his innocence. After the noose was placed around his neck, a long white cap was drawn over his head. William didn't put up a struggle. He didn't have any last words. And after a quick drop and a short struggle, it was all over. He was hung for an hour before being cut down and taken inside for burial. His mother, Sarah, was noted as crying upon his death. They have hanged my saintly Billy. William was 32 at the time he was executed. After his death, William became one of the most infamous criminals in the Victorian era and one of the very first real-world criminals that Arthur Conan Doyle included in his Sherlock Holmes works. Interesting. An effigy of William Palmer was on display in the Chamber of Horrors at Madame Tussauds in London for 127 years. And a cast of William's death mask was taken by William Bailey, phrenologist of Manchester, on June 14, 1856, shortly after his execution. And it was thought to be lost until it was donated to the Winchester Museum in 2002 by the Winchester Prison. And they have no idea how they got it because that wasn't where he was executed. Super strange. It was super weird. Like they lost they lost his full mask. Like they still had like the profile mask. Yeah. But like the full cast of his head had been missing for like hundreds of years. And then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, just we found this in a closet somewhere. Weird. Of William Little Willie Brooks Palmer, his son, mm-hmm. he lived to be 76 and spent most of his life working as a solicitor in London. At the time of his death, he was living in Annerley, Surrey. He was found dead on April 29th. 1926 and at an inquest that was held on may 1st 1926 it was discovered that his cause of death was asphyxia from coal gas poisoning after he left the gas tap on and as a final fun fact dickens once described william palmer as quote the greatest villain that ever stood in the old bailey end quote and he Mm -hmm. used his story as the inspiration for his work bleak house oh like not really but yeah Interesting. <laughs> and that was the super long and really fucked up story of William Palmer. Gross. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they obviously the research was way longer than what I included. Yeah. And there were, they think, up to five or more other victims that weren't officially Probably. tied to him. Most likely. So, yeah. He's kind All of right. it. So 2021 is upon us, and instead of flying cars and monkey robot butlers, we have a pandemic. We have media and making every little annoying twit of a child think they're going to be the next famous celebrity because they did some stupid trend they've seen somebody else doing nine million times. We have people that are self-entitled and stupid and given a voice through social media constantly whining about how everybody else is the problem and how everyone else needs fixings. We have celebrities lecturing us about how we have to give more so we can elevate everyone to a better life from the security of their seven-bedroom, multi-million dollar estates. We have politicians lying to us that they're going to fix the situations we're in that they created in the first place. And then we've got me having the conversations that a lot of us are thinking but nobody's talking about. Because these things have to be said. I had to say at the podcast, Available wherever you get your podcast fix or at www.ihadtosayapodcast.com. Why don't you come listen to what I've got to say? So this week's podcast plug is the I Had to Say It podcast. 
Aaron's show is a weekly podcast where each week he discusses a new topic, such as his personal takes on mental health issues, sexual identity. He addresses a lot of current topics and events. Mm-hmm. And I tend to agree a lot with his viewpoints on things about right. kind of like the world and how the world works. And basically just don't be an asshole. That's kind of his viewpoint. Just don't be a dick and you should be okay. <laughs> Makes sense. So if you're interested in giving it a listen, we'll have a link to his podcast in the show notes. And this week's question comes from the Fact and Suspicion podcast. They want to know, we are curious as to how you select your topics. You have some very interesting ones that we've never heard of until listening. I think I think that goes to you. I don't want to talk anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mix. A lot of them I've been getting from email newsletters that I'm subscribed to where something will come through and I'll be like, ooh, that sounds interesting AF because I've never heard of it before. And then I'll add it to the list. And if I can find a lot of stuff on it, then I will include it as an episode if it's like a blip on the radar. I'm not going to try to dig too deep into it because yeah. it's not, you know, it won't be an episode. Maybe we can do like, maybe we can do holiday episodes that are like just a mix of little mini ones. So you don't have to do as much work. Maybe. This is going to be our bite size episode. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a speed dating, but it's like speed topicking. I don't know. That was a really dumb word. We could do, um, I don't know, just like a tea time. I thought it'd be, there are some that I've kind of grouped together. Mm-hmm. as potential things for like an episode like like different places that are associated with witches you know like this is the witch's rock or this is the witch's cave or you know like you know have a toxic tea time there you go like stuff like that where it's just like short little bits and pieces that you can't find enough information on for it to be a yeah. fully fledged episode it could be fun and sometimes i'll stumble upon stuff on the internet like on you know social media and be like "Ooh, i've never heard of that i'm gonna bookmark that mm-hmm. and i'm gonna learn about it later and that's how we pick our topics Yep. Would you like to talk about something good so I can rest my voice for just a few minutes? Something good. I'm going to have a really lovely weekend. I'm going to meet a new friend and actually get out in the sun. I feel like I haven't been able to spend time outside as much as I wanted to this week, mm-hmm. mostly because of work and various other things. So my something good has not yet happened this week, but mm-hmm. will technically start. So will be on this week. I'm excited for the weekend. How about you? It's funny because when we started recording, I had some in my head and I should have just typed them up quick so I wouldn't have forgotten what they are. But I know one of them is we're going to be traveling this weekend and I had ordered the wrong size collapsible kennel for Kona so we could take her up. It was like just too short. Like she couldn't fully lay out in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And she illustrated that point very beautifully by like laying in it and then like pushing with her paws on like the screen. To show her discontent. Because it's a fabric one. And so she's yep. like pushing on it like, see, this is not going to work. So I was like, I God damn it. <laughs> so I returned it and I ordered a larger sized one. And I was like, please, God, be here before Friday or by Friday because we're leaving early Saturday morning. And thankfully it came today. It's big enough. We've had it open throughout the day so she can kind of like go in and out of it and get a little comfortable being in it. Yeah. So it's not such a like, what the hell are you doing? Daunting thing. I'm hoping it'll be a nice weekend. We'll get to see yeah. my nephews. So it'll be good. super fun. Mm-hmm. So that's my something good. On that note, you can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. Mm-hmm. We're also on YouTube if you want to check it out. We have a P.O. box. So you can write us things or send us things. Get us a trampoline in time for our birthdays in August. Yeah, that too. Hand, hand, hand. You can send it to <laughs> Ye Old Crime Podcast, P.O. Box 
P.O. Box 341, Wyoming, Minnesota, 55092. I don't know why I just went Southern, but I did. Yeah, that's kind of weird. (laughs) It is almost 11 o'clock at night, and I'm kind of losing it. You can email us at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We are running low on questions again, so please send your questions our way or just say hi. Hi. You can leave us a five-star rating and review if you want to help out the show but can't support us financially. Like our friend Jenny over at It's Murder Up North, who says, love these ladies. Five stars. Sisters are awesome. Definitely on my list of favorite podcasts. Covering crimes that are over a century old is not easy, but these hosts make it humorous and entertaining. Cannot wait to hear more. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. I love you. She's... Over in England, and she's one of the first like indie podcasters that I really connected with on Twitter. So hey. she holds a special place in my heart. And she was also a guest on Everyone Dies in Sunderland. Oh, our awesome. friends over there. So I was yeah. like, I know both of those guys. I know all of those guys. Oh, I got very awesome. excited. Nerded out for a second. Mm-hmm. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do so on Buy Me a Coffee. We're also on Patreon, where you can support us for as low as a dollar a month to get early ad-free access to our episodes. You can become a patron, just like our friend Trevor and our friend Aaron and our friend Rebecca. Hey! So you can join their ranks if you join our Patreon, once again, for as low as a dollar a month. Sounds like the year. Not bad at all. You can also support us by purchasing some of our merch on our Tee Public store. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try and get more stuff up there at some point, but summer summer has been banana sauce. Yep. So we'll see. I may have to call in some outside help and be like, help me. Help me. I want to make the things and I can't. I'll try. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Look out for Maddie's merch. It's just a bunch of stick figures and emojis. <laughs> I'll buy that. Click. Our birthday special. Our birthday special. <laughs> a bunch of really awful, like, 90s mismatched, blurred. Oh, I'll, I'll cool. think of something. It'd be cool or something retro. That could be kind of fun. Yeah. But on that note, as always, <laughs> I'm Lindsay. And I'm Maddie. And we'll see you next time with another tale. And don't crime.